I still recall from the books I read All the great empires built in my head But every year I raise one more I bought it all and I dropped off But I'm, I'm still seeking something I'm still seeking something Hello and welcome to a dusty old episode of Seeking Tumnus, the podcast where we read the books that we, or perhaps one of you, loved in your teens and hold it up to the cold light of today to see if it's as good as we collectively remember or if it's a little bit naff. On alternate episodes, when we remember to check the year of release properly, we read books written this side of Harry Potter to see if today's teens are getting dealt a better hand. My name is Laurie. And I'm joined by my fellow hosts, the silver-tongued Keith Rowe. Hello. And the shape-shifting Bree. Hola. For this episode, Laurie, that's me. Listen to one of the podcast's oldest fans and dear friend, Hey Andrew, to select Northern Lights by Phil Pullman. After digging through quite a number of books on Amazon called Northern Lights and deftly avoiding the erotic novellas, <laughs> we sat down to read this first of the His Dark Materials trilogy. We might have read a few of those as well, but anyway, maybe that was just me. <laughs> the erotic versions of the Northern Lights. I can't wait for that segment. <laughs> I'm just going to touch on quickly here the title change to the US, The Golden Compass. And this is from darkmaterials.com, which is unofficial fan site. The title change for the first book of his Dark Materials has been the source of endless confusion for fans on both sides of the Atlantic, and the rationale behind the change isn't entirely clear. When the book was first published in the United Kingdom, it was called Northern Lights. However, when it was published in North America, it was renamed The Golden Compass. Apparently, Pullman's original name for the series was The Golden Compass Says, and that was the name under which he sent it off to American publishers. He heard nothing from them for months, and in the interim decided with his British publisher's full blessing to rename the series His Dark Materials. Months later, Random House sent a letter to inform him that they would be thrilled to publish The Golden Compass. When Pullman explained that the name had changed, insisted that the cover artwork was already slated to publicly appear the following month, and it was too late to change the title. Regardless of the name, the two books are essentially the same beast. So it's meant to be called... Northern Lights. Okay. Yep, but he originally called the series The Golden Compass Says... With the first book in that trilogy being The Northern Lights. Yep. And His Dark Materials was never going to come into it at all. No. Well, that was decided with the British publisher. So that happened in the meantime, whilst the American publishing house was deciding they were going to publish this Golden Compass. And yeah, that's why it was changed to that. Hmm. Interesting. (laughs) Not actually that interesting. I just thought it might be a little bit more exciting. Like, I don't know. The Golden Compass was easier to say than Aletheia Meter. <laughs> I was reading this as well, Keith, and it's not actually the Aletheia Meter that they're referring to when they talk about the Golden Compass. The Golden Compass is another part of a verse from the Bible, um, and I think God used the Golden Compass or created the Golden Compass to create a uh, like a boundary around all of creation. 
So he wasn't actually referring to the alethometer, which is the golden compass looking thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, inst- oh. but instead the tool by w- which God restricted all of creation to a finite size. Yeah, that's certainly confusing. It, it is indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty, as usual before we spoil this book, for those of you who know naught of talking bears, shape-shifting demons and the never-ending story, a warning. We will talk about all sorts of convoluted plot points. Thank you, Laurie, for mentioning just a few of them. So grab out your golden compass and follow it to your local library or trusty bookseller. It's pretty long, though, so if you prefer to cut down on time, you could sit down with Nicole Kidman and Daniel Craig version. We're going to spoil the hell out of this book. Thanks, Bree. Keith, using your lovely baritone, could you read page one for us? Sure. Part 1, Oxford. The Decanter of Tokay. Lyra and her demon moved through the darkening hall, taking care to keep to one side, out of sight of the kitchen. The three great tables that ran the length of the hall were laid already, the silver and the glass catching what little light there was, and the long benches were pulled out ready for the guests. Portraits of former masters hung high up in the gloom along the walls. Lyra reached the dais and looked back at the open kitchen door, and seeing no one, stepped up beside the high table. The places here were laid with gold, not silver, and the fourteen seats were not oak benches but mahogany chairs with velvet cushions. Lyra stopped beside the master's chair and flicked the biggest glass gently with a fingernail. The sound rang clearly through the hall. "'You're not taking this seriously,' whispered her demon. "'Behave yourself!' Her demon's name was Pantalaemon, and he was currently in the form of a moth a dark brown one so as not to show up in the darkness of the hall. They're making too much noise to hear from the kitchen, Lyra whispered back, and the steward doesn't come in till the first bell. Stop fussing. But she put her palm over the ringing crystal anyway, and Pantalaemon fluttered ahead and through the slightly open door of the retiring room at the other end of the dais. After a moment he appeared again. There's no one here, he whispered, but we must be quick. Crouching behind the high table, Lyra darted along and threw the door into the retiring room, where she stood up and looked around. The only light in here came from the fireplace, where a bright blaze of logs settled slightly as she looked, sending a fountain of sparks up into the chimney. She had lived most of her life in the college, but had never seen the retiring room before. Only scholars and their guests were allowed in here, and never females. Even the maidservants didn't clean in here. That was the butler's job alone. There we go. Hmm. At this point, I think I'm interested. There's like a little girl who's a little bit naughty, who alongside her own personal demon is spying on a group of secretive, sexist, presumably white dudes. <laughs> and then <laughs> and they're no doubt dodgy plans, which are probably going to be unraveled. I'm up for that. The only thing is, I think the author undersells the demon there. We learn later that the demons are shape-shifting little beasties that can turn into any animal or any mythical animal that they choose until a certain age. And he leads with a moth. I'm like, come on. (laughs) I know, it's weird, right? (laughs) Yeah, like you've got this amazing character or type of creature, this wonderful tool to use in your novel, and you lead with a moth. Come on. (laughs) Yeah, but a moth is going to be... The easiest thing to hide as. Yeah, but you could be an owl. I mean, an owl flies silently. Yeah, but you still see an owl in the room, whereas a moth is more covert. Right. Yeah, but at this stage, you don't know that it's even going to be changing into anything else, right? 
Well, it does say it changes. Yeah. And he was currently in the form of a moth. Ah, he was currently in the form of a moth. Yeah, all right, fine. Yeah. But still, a moth. Yeah, you don't know that much really yeah, at this point. Bree, what did you think of page one? I hated it. <laughs> Look, I really enjoy fantasy now, some types of fantasy, and I try to go into these with wide open mind, but the language, for starters, the word in the opening before you even get into the book, it says the word daemon is to be pronounced demon. So why not just write the word demon? <laughs> I found that really oh, just annoying to get around. Portraits of masters, talking about a decanter of tokay. I was like, is that some kind of, I don't know, vessel? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Tokay is a Hungarian wine, apparently. Hmm. Oh, I thought you were fully familiar with all forms of alcoholic beverage containers. <laughs> <laughs> but Pantelemon is a really odd name. I just feel like I was thrown all of these concepts and it did not drag me in. I didn't care about this petulant little child snooping around. There was nothing to hold on to me. I like the petulance for sure. But yeah, I was in a similar vein to you, Bree. But as I've mentioned before, I kind of expect this with fantasy. But the idea of the demon was intriguing and I'm always willing to pat out or, or see out the opening chapters of a fantasy book to see if it gets any better. Well, you really did have to read quite a few chapters to get in. <laughs> I was going to say, fortunately, that, that reading was only taste of one trillionth of one-tenth of a skerrick of the book. So <laughs> I know. <laughs> you know we- so, Laurie, why don't you tell us what happens in the rest of the book? <laughs> right. Can you try and keep it down to like 45 minutes, please? <laughs> yeah, that's always the aim with synopses, but uh, mm. I don't mm. think I'm going to succeed this episode. I'm sorry, listeners and hosts. <laughs> <laughs> so, Lyra Bellacroix, 12, is a bit of a ratbag orphan being raised by some fusty old professors at Jordan College, Oxford. Now, those of you with ears, eyes and other sensory bits that we'll keep private are well aware that Oxford does not actually have a Jordan College. Lyra lives in a world not unlike our own, except there are also slightly unusual things like witches, talking bears. And what was the other thing? Oh, yes. Every human has their own personal demon. I have personal demons, I hear you cry. (laughs) And though your daddy issues are fascinating, these demons are more so. They actually are the most interesting part. Like, there should just be a book about them. Mm. These demons are actually the souls of their human hosts, but can, while the host is a child, continuously change shapes into all sorts of animals. As the child moves to adulthood, their demon loses the ability to shift and usually ends up in a form that reflects the host's personality. Keith, for example, might be a woodpecker. Bree might be a badger. And Patrick, a poon hound. (laughs) I'm not entirely sure why I'm a woodpecker. I might ask you offline. (laughs) No, no, we'll introduce that in our segment later. Why is Patrick a poon hound? (laughs) (laughs) The demons are typically the opposite gender to the host and are, of course, very chatty. Scene set. Lyra and the neighbourhood children are worried because kids are going missing. Gobblers, apparently. Lyra's a bit of a rebel, uh, brat, and rather than go to lessons at the college, she does things like wag or hide in cupboards and hear about dust and plots to murder her uncle and so forth. This is fortunate for her uncle, whom she saves before getting thrust back in the closet to listen to a discussion about dust. Mysterious elementary particles attracted more to adults than kids. 
and a mysterious dusty city in the Aurora Borealis. The professors agree to send her uncle off to do research, which is well and good, except that the massive, oppressive Catholic, (coughs) I mean non-specific church, thinks it's all a bit heretical. Right. So, orphans, demons, oppressive church, adventuring scientific uncle who is who is looking for both the origin of dust and Elaine to Oz. What else? Oh, yes. Back at the ranch, Roger, Lyra's buddy that she skipped school to get around with, goes missing. Ah, the aforementioned gobblers have probably got him. Lyra is distraught, but is distracted by the glamorous Mrs. Coulter. Is it Coulter? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Coulter, who, ad- who adopts her. She's too good to be true, obviously. And with the help of an alethiometer, hold the phone. What the flip is an alethiometer, I hear you ask? Well, it's a thingamabob that some people like Lyra can use to find out the truth about things. It's dust-powered. Right. So, with the help of this thing, she discovered that Mrs. Coulter is a biatch who is part of a church-funded group called the General Oblation Board, G-O-B. Catholic. (laughs) (laughs) Gasp gobblers that are responsible for pilfering kids and doing dust knows what to them. Bad church. Bad Mrs. Coulter. Lyra runs off, joins up with some gypsies. I mean, Egyptians. I mean... Egyptians to head off and rescue the kids in the Arctic. On the way, Lyra discovers that Cooties, I mean, Coulter is her mum, her uncle is her dad, and talking bears named Yorick, Berenson, Berry Sun, yeah, Fuzzy Pants, that get around in <laughs> badass metal armour are good friends to have when going on rescue missions. So are the witches and dudes in balloons. Through the magical power of lying and a lot of help, Lyra evades the desperately searching Mrs. Cooties to find the children, discovers the church is experimenting, separating the children from their demons, which makes them placid, church-obeying citizens, when it doesn't kill them outright. They rescue the kids. There's a big battle between the church's researchers and minions and the Egyptians, witches on both sides, Yorick the badass bear of doom, etc., Yorick becomes king of the bears. Lyra rushes off to find her imprisoned uncle slash dad, who turns out to be more of a twat than we thought he was, as he basically kills Lyra's friend Roger to rip open a hole between the dimensions to access the city shimmering up in the Aurora Borealis. He reckons that the dust that had been flowing through the Aurora all this time is the root of all evil, and he's off to blow it up or destroy the source of the dust or something. Lyra's like, right, Screw you, Dad. If you say dust is evil, then you're clearly a wanker, and I'm going to stop you. She and Pantalemon step through the portal into another world. <sighs> the end. Great job. According to Kindle, this book takes six hours and 45 minutes to read. I swear it took me at least double that. <laughs> to listen to the synopsis? <laughs> no, to read the whole book, but yes. It was very long and I had to skip back and reread it and go back and do more passages again. And even then I still can't like remember all of the important plot points that you raised just then. Good synopsis. Yeah, so now that you've told us what it's all about, why don't you tell us why we're doing this book, Laurie? I did it for the fans, Keith. I did it for the fans. (laughs) (laughs) And friendship. (laughs) Yeah, so... Our friend Andrew, who's been listening for a long time, along with his partner Elle, big fans, occasionally post on Facebook and mention this book months and months and months ago. And it is actually one that I'd been interested in in the past, but probably particularly because the name of the trilogy, His Dark Materials, just sounds great. It sounds like Alan Garner or someone similar. Maybe Susan Cooper might have written it. So 
I was always attracted to the book, had never picked it up, and Andrew just provided the excuse. So that's that's basically it. Cool. We always accept fan contributions, so feel free to make a suggestion. Just don't make it the sequel to this book. <laughs> oh, All right, you're getting ahead of yourself there, Bree. <laughs> Keith, what did you think? Well, by my estimation, this book was young adult fantasy in its purest form. And there comes a point in time when you've read so much of a certain type of book that you can't take any more. This was definitely not the case with this book. <gasps> Funnily enough, to a small degree, this has somewhat revitalized my interest in coming-of-age fantasy. (gasps) (laughs) I actually enjoyed the wonderfully rich world that was gradually revealed to us through Lyra, and I found her to be a complex and interesting protagonist. It was through her, but in the third person, that we understand more and more about the world, her friends and her acquaintances, and most of all, we're learning about Lyra herself. And much of that learning comes through her interactions with her demon, Pantalaemon. And as we've already talked about, uh, the demons, these are an integral part of the story, and I thought that was a wonderful and really inventive point of difference from other fantasy. In youth, the dynamic form of the demon is representative of the learning and growing aspects of childhood and adolescence, and they only mature into their final form in line with the maturation of the human. They're effectively representative of one's soul, and being removed from your demon is not only immensely painful, as it turns out, but it's eventually fatal in some cases, as we learn in the book when the Oblation Board and what's the name of the church? The the Magisterium? The Magisterium, yeah, uh, separating children from their demons. I should have also pointed out that I found the writing in this book to be really excellent. Pullman is a great writer. And that writing, although at times a little verbose, or a lot verbose at times, it really pulls you into his world. Even though I've said pretty good things about it, I did have a few problems with the book. Because we're so closely attached to Lyra, we're constantly in this really tightly focused micro view of the story. And it would have been good to occasionally get a a more distant view of the world and the plot, the motivations and the machinations. We did eventually get to see these, but only through Lyra, which made them difficult to contextualize. It was really focused in very tightly around her. And this is this massive world with connections to other dimensions and it would have served us better. Well, it was effectively our world, but it's got connections to other dimensions as we learned. It would have served better in some cases to kind of see where we were going before we got there or to have at least an idea of it and we didn't really. It was a bit of a slog to begin with. The first part in particular was a struggle to get through and I think it was about almost a fifth of the way through when I realized I was actually enjoying it. Before that, it was kind of like, just keep going, just keep going. And it sounds like Brie continued with that right throughout. It's normal in these sort of books to have a difficult journey with an endless array of obstacles and you expect that. But here I thought it was done really well. I think that was what really frustrated me the most was that there was never a moment to pause and reflect on what they were doing, where they were going. It was just this endless challenge, obstacle, next fight, next character it never slowed down to actually I think you said it well earlier to see the pieces and the machinations I would have really appreciated a moment of reflection on that and maybe it is because it's told through a 12 year old girl but she's so petulant and irritating that (laughs) she doesn't give you the space to breathe and it's so frustrating I just felt like you never appreciated any individual adventure piece in its entirety because they were just moving you on to the next one. I found that really frustrating. 
No, I agree. Like it wasn't as frustrating for me, but you're right. You didn't know how these puzzle pieces were going to come together and if they were at all. There was a lot of puzzle pieces. And a lot that I don't think did come together and maybe it will in future novels, but there were so many bitsy pieces all over the place that I I just don't care enough to go and find out. Yeah. Well, it was certainly written as part of a trilogy, so it doesn't have an ending that ties things together nicely, not in any way, shape or form, which yeah, is, is difficult when you read something this large and know that to continue into that is going to be as time consuming, if not more. Apart from Lyra, I didn't really feel a particular attachment to many of the other characters. Not even Fuzzy Pants? Certainly not Fuzzy Pants. Oh, you're not going to like my scoring system. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Who's Fuzzy Pants? (laughs) Fuzzy Pants is Yorick Berenson. Oh, okay. Yeah, Yorick was the next best. Yeah, definitely. Uh, It's a bit of an obstacle to overcome being a talking bear that wears this soul-defining armour, but- Yeah, he was pretty cool. That sort of thing is pretty common for me with fantasy, so probably shouldn't make a big thing of it. I guess it's because they have, or fantasy tends to have more archetypal villains and it's just something I have to deal with. Uh, There was, of course, a more than lingering sense that the book had a strong position against organised religion, or at the very least it was didactic in its encouragement of free will and free thinking. That's a deduction removed from the book itself that leads to the obvious comparisons between that and organised religion, and we've talked about the Catholic Church in particular here. I'm not suggesting that Philip Pullman is incorrect in his position or that he's even taking a position that extends outside of the book, but there was a feeling at times that the story had to follow a particular path to make a message about free thinking, and that in doing so, it had to shine a negative light on the magisterium, which is an organisation inherently opposed to that. The ones doing experiments on children... Yes, there's ones. Right, just making yeah. sure we're talking about the same one. All right, go on. <laughs> what other ones are there? Uh, I was just being... Facetious? Facetious, yes, thank you. <laughs> At any length, this book operates on several levels, and for me, for the most part, they were all enjoyable and well executed. I liked it. I was glad this got suggested to us. Bree, why don't you tell me why I'm wrong? <laughs> <laughs> I won't start there because there were things about this that I really enjoyed. The world, which is so similar to ours and yet runs parallel, or the many worlds that may or may not run parallel, I found fascinating. There's all those hints and similarities and likenesses. They go to effectively Scandinavia to Sweden-type country to see the Aurora Borealis. Even having the Aurora Borealis there in their parallel universe, seeing glimpses of what might be our world through the Aurora Borealis. That I found absolutely fascinating. The other things, things like gypsies traveling on a barge, where you wonder if something was slightly different here, maybe they would have their own nation state within one of the countries in in Europe as well. I found that fascinating. So I thought that that was cleverly constructed um, and it made me feel comfortable to read through it because it wasn't just fantasy dragons and those sorts of magical beings. Talking of magical beings, the other thing that I did really like was this concept of the demon sitting on your shoulder. I shudder to think what mine (laughs) would say about me, but I really enjoyed trying to pick what each animal says about their owner. So by the time you turn into an adult, your shape-shifting demon has taken on its more permanent form and it 
basically says something about what you are in your very innermost soul. So Lord Azrael has a snow leopard for his demon. So to me, that's cold, calculated, quite conniving, fairly sleek. So what does that actually say about him as a person? Yeah, that's a really good point. I wonder whether like surely in a world like that, everyone would just be judged instantly based on their demons. Exactly right. But it doesn't seem to happen. Mrs. Coulter's sneaky little simpering. Violent. uh, Yes. Golden monkey. I mean, what does that say about her? And why don't people, as you say, immediately judge everybody else based on that? That's because they're all being brainwashed by the the magisterium, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) But I loved that concept. It seemed so foreign at start. So the first, as you say, good fifth to a third of the book, I found that quite slow going, but I really started to appreciate Pantalaemon for his ingenuity and the way that he reacted to situations. I thought that was fascinating. How good would it be to have that demon to just constantly bounce ideas off? It's like- Yeah. Who needs friends? Yeah. And then I found it interesting to see that they all found it so weird to see these children without demons that it was uh, it was actually quite harrowing for them and they really they rejected it. They were utterly repulsed by seeing a a child who had had their demon severed from them. They were utterly repulsed by this idea because they see the person and the demon as a whole, not just as a single. Yeah, so I really enjoyed that concept. I guess it's equally as horrific as seeing like a zombie, right? Something that's been stripped of its humanity, whereas this you've been stripped of your soul. So, mm. Mm. I liked those rules actually. That that particular rule, that societal rule, and the other one where you never touch another person's demon, and when that happens mm. in a book, it's like a a real affront. Yes, exactly. Mm. So mm. you feel the pain through it. Yeah, yeah, you feel pain through the pain of your demon. So if someone's beating up your demon, you're feeling the same thing. Yeah, I thought that really added colour. Instead of just sort of being these ethereal things that are insubstantial and don't connect with the world, they very much connect with the world and yourself if if they're inflicted with injury. And the cultural norms and societal rules have all grown around this fundamental state of existence of you and a demon, yeah. And they're in the Bible. Yes, So one of the things which I spoke about earlier was that the adventure felt like three books in one. We never were given pause to reflect on uh, where the the story ends because we just cut it off and moved on to the next piece. And often that was by physical movement. So you cut off the story, you get onto a dog sled, and then the next thing you know, you're at a prison for children. You cut off the story, you travel on the back of your bear, and the next thing you know, you're at the bear palace. You cut off your story, you get in the floating balloon zephyr, and the next thing you know, you're at the next stop. You're on the barge. Each individual adventure is told and then finished by your physical movement somewhere else. There's nothing to tie them all together. I've got an interesting question and answer from... Pullman's site that maybe gives a little insight into that. Mm. What, if any, advantages for the author are there in having a young readership? And his answer, it forces you not to let the story go out of your mind. If you stop telling a story, they stop reading. Story is very important. It's the events themselves, as Isaac Bashevis Singer says, that contain the wisdom and not what we say about them. Mm. Interesting. But with a little mini tribute to Adam West, I'm just going to say, bam, we're listening to a private conference. Kapow! 
Roger has disappeared. Boom! Lyra is escaping the golden monkey. Then she's on a gypsy barge, speaking to the witches, meeting a bear. She's on a zephyr. She's doing a science experiment. I have to turn my page over. It just frustrated me. You don't Mm. have to have all of those. Yes, you can continue telling the story, but you could cut half of those out, I think, to make it a more digestible tale. Yeah, right. Rather than having those physical modes of transport move the story along, you could just have a, a star wipe. I don't know what that means. Oh. It's, it's a like, star wipe? Yeah, like a crappy film transition, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Where it like spins across its, itself like in Star Wars. Yeah, okay. You, but in all reality, you could cut out large segments of this book and not lose too much. No. But maybe there's parts in here that are setting up for the subsequent books. I don't know. And that's the part that you forgive it for, I think, is with this in mind, knowing that it is part of a trilogy, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps that's why it's going that way. I don't know. I won't read the next ones. The subject matter I found was fascinating, but I did think that for a kid's book it was fairly complex. So I read that this was for eight to 12-year-olds and I thought that it was fairly dark and very layered. I mean, there's torture of children in the name of the church and in the name of effectively original sin and adult sins. So gosh, what, we're going to torture children just because adults sin so dreadfully? I think the idea is that they'll protect the children from the sin, which is the dust. Mm. And Mm -hmm. the way they do that is by severing them from their demons. And They're forcibly severing children from their souls and removing their essence and uniqueness. Exactly. It makes them very (laughs) pliant and very, uh, like, sheepish, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, it does. So it's fairly dark. There's some fairly violent scenes. There's the king of the bears, the the current king of the bears, Joffa Rackneson, who is challenged by the bear that is supposed to be the true king of the bears, which is Lyra's friend, Yorick Berenson. That's a fairly violent and protracted scene of ripping each other's jaw off and such things. Makes me feel a little bit ill just reflecting on it. You should have seen the movie. (laughs) Yeah, the movie was pretty full on. I like Uh. how the bears' names are very... Icelandic or I get not not even Icelandic, what should I say? Scandinavian. They sound like things you could purchase in IKEA. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do feel that I must be a very one-dimensional reader. Us too. I read re- <laughs> No, so I read reviews of this afterwards and I've got to admit I just kind of took this at face value, but it was only after reading it that I realized, oh yeah, original sin and, you know, church and started to sort of think about it a little bit more that it made me consider it a little bit more in depth and maybe in a perfect world I'd reread it but I'm not going to. It might be the opposite to uh, the Narnia trilogy where some of us grew up into adults and realised that we'd been preached Christianity to and somebody else might grow up and say, hey, (laughs) you secular scum. I've been preached atheism. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) I wouldn't say that it's atheism. I think it's preaching the idea of free thinking. Right, okay. Above all else, yeah. Yeah. I found it really long. I found it violent in parts. I found it very bitsy because the transitions weren't well done. I found a lot of the concepts very difficult to follow for much of it. I wasn't that interested in dust. I just didn't really care that much. Lord Azrael's a bit of an ass. Mrs. Coulter's a bit of a bitch. Lyra is a petulant prat 
for 98% of the book and I just did not care what happened in the end. Hmm. Sacrifice yourself. Let Roger live. It was a pretty hard ending for Lyra. Like she's held her father in, in high esteem after learning that he is her father and then she gets there and you to find out that he's an absolute asshole. Yeah, and kills her friend, her childhood friend Roger, the person that she's actually gone out to save in the first place. Yeah. Oh, God. Anyway, so she does redeem herself a little bit at the end. She could have ended up much worse given her parents and her upbringing and the realisation of who her parents were. Like she still soldiered on, which I found appealing. Yeah, she was always doing what she thought was right and pretty much generally was right. Mm. But I really liked the world and this concept of demons a lot. What did you think, Laurie? Yeah, I think you've covered off the major sin of the book and that's that it felt like it was far too long. It was probably like one major event or scene too many, I think. If they had mm. just dialed it back a bit and cut off one of those action scenes, I think you would have cut off enough of a chunk of a book to make it a bit more appealing. Like even the Lee Scoresby bit, he really didn't add that much other than to provide another mechanism to move to move the story from one physical location to the next. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. And, and Keith, your point was really interesting because it's something I didn't realise until you mentioned it, that it is exclusively through the eyes of Lyra. Like we never leave her as a character. It's always centred on her. And I, I didn't really think about that too much when I was reading. But having moved on from reading the book and now reading another book that switches between two characters, like I'm, I'm really loving this book. And that might be why, because it, it moves around and it's working towards a common ending between the two characters or a theme between the two characters. And yeah, I probably just got a little bit sick of being focused in 100% of the time on Lyra. Mm, yeah, I think you lose the context a little bit when you're so closely focused on one character. Hmm. It's good in a way because everything's revealed to her and to you at the same time. But as a reader, you want to have a further insight than some of the characters. Right. And if you've got two characters, especially if they're opposing characters, then you can build much more tension in a book, I think, rather than if you're just, yes, having things revealed slowly along with the character. I think that's good to a point. But if you can have two separate or more threads going, so long as you don't go crazy and end up being a Robert Jordan, who's renowned for having like... 50 plot points going at once that you have to draw, you know, diagrams with bits of string going between them. Maybe more characters and through the eyes of those other characters. Maybe Yorick would have been a good one to follow. Mm. Or Roger. Yeah, maybe Roger. Poor old Roger. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think Lyra was immediately lovable and I'm not really sure I connected fully with her at the end. But I found it easier to appreciate the quality of her deceptions as the book progressed. She was a very accomplished liar. She really did go through a lot of stuff and she didn't have a great upbringing to begin with. And despite all of that, she soldiers on trying to do the right thing. And sometimes she falls short. But at the end of the book, she's basically fighting against her mother and her father, two probably of the most evil people on the planet, and and still wants to stop them. She just lost her best friend as a child. She's just been murdered by her father. And yet she's willing to step through into another world and try and stop her father from committing this horrible sin. So I think she really won a few stars back at that point. I did feel like I was channeling Bree at one point. There was... 
far too many cases of the author introducing new or obscure terms and then not explaining them until chapters later. I don't mind fantastical terms, but it felt stretched and I was taken out of the moment by that ignorance of terms that could, probably should have been explained as they appeared. Like dust was mentioned very early on and we don't really know what dust is at the end of the book exactly and we don't get more thorough explanations until at least halfway through the book. So... You stopped caring partway along, right? I don't like feeling ignorant. If if they'd had, you know, an asterisk and then a little glossary you could look up at the back, sure, that takes you out of the moment, but at least you can get some satisfaction and move on. You could have had Lemony Snicket interjecting, Laurie. You love that. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I, I don't like being taken out of the moment, but even more so, I don't like feeling ignorant. Come on, Lemony Snicket was different because they were just explaining real words, not like a, a, a theol- what was it? What is it? Uh, Alethiometer yeah. and hmm. dust with a capital D. But anyway, despite all of these issues, I really did love the concept and the setting, really loved the concept of the demons and the way that they would change um, and the way that they became fixed as you became an adult to reflect your personality, how they're the opposite gender. And it did seem like they were even though they represent your soul, they did seem to be relatively autonomous and able to go back and forth with you in conversation. In that very first page, in the moth form, Pantalema was saying, you shouldn't be doing this. So I don't think they were just a mirror that they were holding up to themselves. And having that best friend to follow you through your entire life just seemed wonderful. You know, friends come and go and you form and lose bonds with people over time. But to have that one permanent thing sounds... Pretty attractive to me. I didn't mind the ending. Obviously, it's a big cliffhanger because Lyra steps through into another universe that could be ours or it could be another one similar to ours. And I liked the church as the big bad. I do actually want to read on. I have to admit, though, it's not at the top of my list. I'll get to it, but it's not something like I'm desperately moving on to next. So, yeah, all round, I think I enjoyed it. It did have some problems, particularly the length and probably adding a few too many events that just weren't necessary that dragged it out but on a whole i enjoyed it good one and you watched the movie didn't you Laurie? i did that brought me to a point about the age of the book you mentioned this before Bree, particularly with the violence i felt it was a bit at odds with itself we have a 12 year old character in the book and the movie but i think it struck me more in the movie i felt like the book because of the high concepts mixed in with the the adventure i felt like the book maybe should have been aimed at maybe 15 or 16-year-olds. In the movie, Yorick's fighting... Yother. Yeah, that guy. The the climax of the fight is him reaching up and ripping this bear's jaw off before biting into his neck and killing him. Yeah, after that bear had taken on some human personality traits and through doing so had been able to be tricked, whereas bears previously couldn't. He'd taken over his own instinct, Yeah, which I thought was interesting. That was interesting. Yeah, it was. There was also people dying, you know, arrows shot into them, which you saw in the movie, and the abuse of the children. So anyway, I thought that maybe the book was aimed at something above 12-year-olds. And then I thought to myself, does it really work to have a book? Let's just imagine it was for 15, 16-year-olds, or maybe that is the audience it should be for. Then does it really work to have a 12-year-old if you're an older reader? You know, maybe I'm just um, a bit older and I've lost touch with what age kids are find to be reading that kind of stuff. 16-year-olds really enjoyed Harry Potter, but this is not Harry Potter. Right. 
So, um, yeah, I just felt that was a little bit at odds with itself. Maybe having some of that stuff in there is something that makes it more attractive to children. It's almost more mystical or it's more extreme than other things they've read. But I do have the answer to the question anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's from that same Q&A. Who do you write for, children or adults? Myself, no one else. If the story I write turns out to be the sort of thing that children enjoy reading, then well and good. But I don't write for children. I write books that children read. Some clever adults read them too. <laughs> right. Okay. He sounds like an, an interesting character, but he's very much writing for himself. And that's in several of the other questions that he's asked, that comes through as well. He, he writes what he wants to write, what he thinks is interesting, and just so happens to find an audience primarily with children. And probably that's because it, in many ways, fills out the standard coming-of-age template but there's so much more to it. Mm. Yeah, so that's a very clever answer. I'm not entirely convinced he hasn't aimed it younger, though. <laughs> At a certain point, you also have to get your books published and you need to find an audience in order to do so. <laughs> Which shelf am I putting it on? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I'm sure he didn't pitch this as an adult's book or, or whatever, but mm. yeah, that's where the origins of it lie. Mm. So back to the movie. How fantastic were the visuals? Yeah, for a 2007 movie, I think it was pretty grand. The demons were the first thing that really stuck out. Pantalaemon is like a weasel one second, he's a bird the next, and he's just continuously changing with these pretty good 3D effects. Mm. It really struck me, especially after hearing about the crappy old moth, like how fun it was to watch them in action and how fun it would be to own a demon because of their the fun it looked to have them changing so much. I don't think you own the demon. It's part of you. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. What did you think of the casting? Uh, yeah, I thought the acting was good and the casting was also really good. It must have been a huge budget because it had a pretty all-star cast and as we've mentioned, the special effects were bang on and it didn't shy away from big dramatic scenes or anything like that. It was a really well-made movie in many respects, not in all. Casting-wise, I think they nailed it. What do you think? Yeah, I thought Lyra was excellent. That right balance between, is it Cockney? I don't know, slightly rough English and still palatable to watch, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) And the casting was good. Nicole Kidnam, uh, what's his name? Is it Daniel Craig? (laughs) I love how you call him Nicole Kidnam. (laughs) Why do I always say that? Nicole Kidman (laughs) and Daniel Craig, is it? She, she, yeah, Daniel Craig. Yeah, she was doing just that in this. She was kidding them. And uh, <laughs> she was just the kind of perfect Mrs. Coulter in that she was too good to be true. Right, right. I think the movie did something quite different to the book in that it did give you an advance on the information. It didn't withhold what dust was and what the, what the magisterium were up to. You saw those things in unison with Lyra's discoveries of the world. You weren't trapped in her view. And that made a difference to, for me, watching it, to how well I could understand what was happening as I went, as opposed to learning a lot of it at the end, which is the case with the book. Right. Yep. Mm, Okay. I saw a lot of complaints about how much it had been edited down, but I thought it moved along pretty well. Mm. Yeah, you'd have to. There's no way you could include all that's in that book in a movie. It would have been like if Peter Jackson got his hands on this, it would be like 12 movies. (laughs) Mm. <laughs> yeah, right. I thought the movie was well executed, but the tragedy of that is that mm. the two sequels will never be made. Well, certainly not by the same director. It was 
not a massive hit in the US. I think it did okay in other countries, but the US is really where the money's made, I think, for movie studios. And it just didn't make it. And there was a lot of controversy before and after the release of the film, right? Yeah, heaps of controversy. And I mean, the book existed well in advance of the movie, but the movie being that it was mass marketed drew a lot of attention in particular from some quarters of Catholic protest groups. Yes, I think they were very vocal and it led to some editing of the movie before it was released. That's terrible. You can't challenge the essence of a director like that. That's awful. Right. So I'm not sure whether it was this controversy that affected the film's ratings, but there was there was a lot of protesting before the film was released. And then on the other side of the fence, a lot of fans of the series were mortified that the movie's themes or the book's themes had been watered down in the movie. So <laughs> you've peed off organised religious groups before the movies are released and then you've peed off the fans afterwards, they must have just peed off too many people, I think. Yeah. Mm. And the fact that they basically just cut the ending short was unforgivable, I think, because- At what bit did they cut it? They cut it when Lyra and Roger are on their way to see the dad. Oh, Lord Asriel. Uncle Dad. Yeah, Asriel. Yeah, Uncle Dad. So, we don't get to find out. At that point- in Lyra's mind and I guess in movie watchers that haven't read the book, Azrael could still be a good guy. Ah. Yep. Roger's still alive. Roger's still alive. It's left on this high like she's going to take Roger home and they're going to Daddy who's going to help us get home. And then there's no second novel that's going to be made into a movie. There's the book. There's no movie. <laughs> because that is it, shit. Because it didn't uh, meet the ratings. It didn't make enough money. Yeah, apparently there was pressure to end the movie on a high note. Ugh. Yeah, exactly. So they ended the movie on this this high note and it was supposed to be the best possible introduction for the next movie. Ah, I'm bad all along. Mm. And then he gets chased into the next world. Yes, after a bit of toing and froing with the, what are they called? Not publisher. Um, the film company or the? Yeah, the, the film company went back and forward a little bit, but eventually it was revealed that no, we won't be making any more. So <laughs> The studio. Studio, yes, that's right. So. Yeah. Yeah, the funny thing is, though, in the meantime, there's this Golden Compass game that's being worked on and they had all segments from the movie that had been put into the game. So, there's a number of scenes that extend beyond the actual ending of the mainstream movie that show Lyra arriving and seeing her dad and her dad seeing her and overreacting by thinking, oh, shit, Lyra's here, I'm going to have to kill her, and then seeing Roger and having the ultimate relief because you know he knows he needs that, that child to traverse into another universe. So, that did get filmed and created and everything, and it is out there in the form of a game in parts. And there's this tragic, in a sense, fan-made ending to the movie that fills it out in much the same way that the book does. It's on YouTube if anyone wants to get some closure having watched the first film or the, the only film. It was pretty painful to watch because it's a mixture of those scenes that were extracted from the video game plus a whole bunch of hand-drawn stills. That must have been yeah. like concept art or illustrations from the book or something. But you'll have, you know, Daniel Craig acting and then you'll have a black and white cartoon picture of Lyra looking shocked and then it'll go to like a painting that must have been the cover of a book or something like And it just sort of flicks between these things. And I think it must be a narration from the 
audio book at one point as well. Yeah. <laughs> so you'd have to be a pretty, you know, diehard Desperado fan to really get some enjoyment out of that, I think. <laughs> no, I, I like seeing it. It was it was Case in point. very much a yeah, it was very much uh we did the best with what we had and like it would cut between Daniel Craig talking and the narration and then back to him in the same sentence. It was really bitsy. But if you could look beyond that, I think it's it's interesting at the very least. I was actually tempted to play the video game because I'm a huge gamer and I saw, oh, video game ties in perfectly. I'll create a new segment. And then I saw the reviews and it was two out of five or <laughs> 30 out of 100 in the reviews. So the game and- didn't even do very well. No, I don't think it was very good. So, But they went all out with this, or at least budget-wise they went all out. Having the game, the movie not shying away from action and having an all-star cast – and a nice cameo from Magda Sabansky. That was interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. There seems to be a lot of effort in the casting, but also the effect. You said it once before. It must have been a big budget. And mm. I'm a bit sad that it flopped so hard. Yeah. I was going to just cover off a bit more of the Q&A from Pullman because I thought it was interesting and gave some insights. And I've already covered off a couple of them. But here's another one I found interesting. You once said that his Dark Materials is not a fantasy, but stark realism. What did you mean by that? And he answers, that comment got me into trouble with the fantasy people. What I mean by it was roughly this, that the story I was trying to write was about real people, not beings that don't exist like elves or hobbits. Lyra and Will and the other characters, and Will is only a, comes into it in the later books, I'm guessing, are meant to be human beings like us, and the story is about a universal human experience, namely growing up. The fantasy parts of the story were there as a picture of aspects of human nature, not as something alien and strange. For example, readers have told me that the demons, which at first seemed so utterly fantastic, soon become so familiar and essential a part of each character that they, the readers, feel as if they've got a demon themselves. And my point is that they have, that we all have. It's an aspect of our personality that we often overlook, but it is there. That is what I mean by realism. I was using the fantastical elements to say something that I thought was true about us and about our lives. Hmm, that's interesting. You've run into criticism from certain religious groups who regard you as subversive, with the Catholic Herald describing your work as worthy of the bonfire. (laughs) Do such such emotional responses concern or upset you, or does it please you to generate strong reactions? I'm delighted to have brought such excitement into what must be very dull lives. (laughs) <laughs> I like that. <laughs> As I said before, I think he's an interesting character and it comes through in that Q&A. There's several pages of it on his website, which is, I think, philip-pullman.com. So, check it out if you want to find out more about who he is. Is he American, British or other? He's British. Mm, okay. And finally, I have a completely unrelated segment. <gasps> oh, I love unrelated segments. <laughs> Bring it on. It just happened that I saw this a few weeks back. It was the most borrowed library books in Australia. Is it this book? Seriously? No, no. It's completely oh. unrelated to this. <laughs> uh, actually, the top 10 books borrowed in Australian libraries between May 2016 and April 2017. Harry Potter 1 through 10. No, this is outside of young adult. This is opening it up to all books in general. Ah, oh, yes. They're all crime thrillers. Really? <laughs> yeah. 
I found that interesting for a few reasons, but firstly because in young adult categories you don't really get crime thrillers or mystery books. You get mystery, but you don't really get crime thrillers. I know a fantastic author that has written one particular book that would fit that nicely Stop and would be adored it. by all. Stop it. Oh, do Stop go on. <laughs> Master of Murder. <laughs> oh, intriguing. We should do an episode on it. We should. No comment. I'm sure that wouldn't break my heart. <laughs> I guess that the fact that we don't see a lot of true crime, or not true crime, of crime thrillers makes sense in a way because they're not very conducive to coming of age. But I also believe that crime mystery thrillers are pretty open and appealing to young adult readers, so it's not like they need to be positioned directly at them and need to have young characters and coming of age themes because I myself, as a young adult, I read a hell of a lot of crime thrillers, particularly those by Patricia Cornwell and in particular of hers, the Kay Scarpetta series, and I think she's 24 books into that now. Now that I think about it, it was a pretty great series to read as a young adult, not just because of the gripping writing and the intriguing plot twist, but also the complex characters, the strong female leads, and the general LGBT awareness that was in that book. In the 90s. Yeah, in a general sense, it was ahead of its time. But I've digressed completely. So here are the top 10 young adult books borrowed from Australian libraries between May 2016 and April 2017. Coming in at 10, we have City of Bones. Oh, that was on my list for a while. Yeah, Cassandra Clare, 2007. Number nine, Looking for Alaska, which is, of course, John Green. Number eight, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Mm. Interestingly, not the first, but maybe there's more Harry Potter to come. Number seven, The Maze Runner, one that we've all done and enjoyed to differing degrees. Number six is Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Number five, you probably like this one, Laurie, Naruto. Really? Yes. Oh, man. I would love to force you guys to read some Naruto. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's nothing stopping you. I've forced some books upon us and Bree's forced some upon us as well, so it's probably your turn. (laughs) What are you talking about? He's just forced (laughs) the dark materials on us. Bree, can you have a look on the bookshelf and just tell me how many Naruto books I've got on the shelf there? Uh, Three, six, nine, twelve, fifteen. I don't know, at least 21. Ah, cool. (laughs) We've got a good selection to read there. (laughs) Plenty to choose from. Are they picture books though? Yes, they are manga. <laughs> I don't think they're called picture books. We don't read picture books on this podcast. What number are they? Seven? Number seven? That was number five. Number five. Come on, it's number five on the list. We'd be doing our fans a disservice if we didn't read them. Exactly. We have to now that it's on this official list. It's so relatable. Keith, you shouldn't be encouraging this. Move on. <laughs> What's number four? That wasn't my intention. <laughs> if you're going to rule out picture books, Brie, I'm going to have to knock off Spot Has a Picnic from my list. <laughs> Not f***ing picture books. They're either manga or graphic novels. <laughs> exactly. That's right. That's my point. Uh, number four is Divergent, Veronica Roth, and we've done that one. <laughs> number three is The Fifth Wave by Richard Yancey, and I have no idea what that is. I probably should have looked that up. I think it's... Post-Alien Survival. Okay, interesting. Well, it's very popular and it's quite modern, 2013 as well. Number two is Paper Towns, our friend John Green. And the number one book is The Fault in Our Stars. Ah. John Green has three in the top ten. He does, which is interesting because 
the most recent of those is 2012. And I've also got the 2016 equivalent list and it was much less diverse. It has three books from James Dashner. Mm. So they're three from the Maze Runner trilogy. It has The Hunger Games, which interestingly didn't make this list, but still should have because it's a great book. It had both of the other Hunger Games trilogy books. It had three from Veronica Roth, so all of hers. It was very much less diverse than this one. So it seems to be heading in a good direction in that we're breaking away from those blockbuster trilogies to explore a few other things. Hmm. Hmm, Good. Yeah, interesting. Thanks, Keith. No problems. Why don't we score this sucker? One star. This book is a Joffa Ragnarsson vapid, and it is a world covered in cuddly teddy bears. Nothing of substance. Did you say vapid? Yes. Do you mean vapid? Is it vapid? <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> Deary me. That is one of those words, though, that you, yeah, I think it's vapid, but that's, it's one of those words that you generally only read. So you can go through your life without hearing it, mm. unless someone's calling you vapid. <laughs> I actually, when I was writing this in my head, I was saying vapid, so I can't believe I said vapid. You've ruined me with Lyra Lyra. Uh. <laughs> Lord Azriel is two stars, a cunning tale, but a little bit like Daniel Craig's performance, a bit lacklustre. Three stars, Lyra, petulant and irritating. You spent most of the book yelling at her, but there is some redemption at the end. Four stars, Mrs. Coulter, alluring, charming, ruthless, until the golden monkey ends up stealing the show. Five stars, Yorick, not the central character, but he's the best one and he leaves you wanting more, more, more. I'm immensely troubled by this scale. <laughs> but go ahead, Laurie. <laughs> I told you, it's my subjective scoring on characters. Yorick was clearly the best character. He was the most interesting one for me. I enjoyed every scene that he was in, except for the violent ripping off of the jaw. But Mrs. Coulter? Yeah, she was great. I thought she was absolutely fascinating. Yeah, she is fascinating, I guess. But Yeah, in the same way that Hitler was fascinating. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> Hmm. It did drag on a bit. There were a few things I didn't like, but I did really enjoy it. And we'll get to the others eventually. I think a pretty solid three stars for me. Yeah. I'm going to go with a matrix of Bree's options here. I'm going to give it four stars, Yorick. Sorry, Bree. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't give five stars to Lyra because she's so irritating the whole way through. This one for me is actually three stars as well because I really enjoyed the crafted world and I felt guilty about being such a one-dimensional reader once I started researching this a little bit (laughs) and realising I should have been looking into it a little bit more and thinking about it a bit more rather than just thinking about how frustrating it was. Yeah, it's definitely a lot of levels in operation here and if you think of it as a children's book, you can miss some of Mm. those levels quite easily. Yeah. And I think really I suffered a lot from this and I'm sure Bree did as well, but it's for me, if you could dedicate a chunk of time to just this book, no distractions, you would enjoy it a hell of a lot more. I would have enjoyed it a hell of a lot more than I did and I still gave it four stars, so there you go. That's saying something. It felt like a chore to pick it up at the end of every night. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It did accelerate at the end for me. I felt the same way that you both did in that the first – Maybe third of the book or quarter of the book was slow and a bit of a slog. But, I mean, right towards the end, it did pick up a lot. There was a lot more progression, I think, right at the end. Mm. And obviously that final scene was a bit of a whammy. So, uh, yeah. Hey, Keith. Mm? What do you reckon Laurie's demon is? I'd say it would be, I think, a meerkat for some reason. I don't know. What do you think? Meerkats are pretty anal. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, they have an attention to detail, but they've got a, an inherent cheekiness, but they're also always looking out for their friends. Yeah, they're, they're, they're very social. I think he needs to have something that's a bit more of a joker, some kind of a- Yeah, I think a meerkat is a bit of a joker. Some kind of a dog, a small dog, <laughs> like a poodle. Yes, of course, dear listeners, they're saying this because I find small dogs to be atrocious <laughs> beings. <laughs> Chihuahua. Uh, clearly, I'm either a German Shepherd or an Otter. Well, pa- <laughs> <laughs> uh, you ought to do better than that. <laughs> I'm oddly adorable. Pat as a poonhound. <laughs> He's not a poonhound. What would he be? He'd be something. <laughs> I only called him that because he's not here to defend himself. <laughs> he'd be some kind of. He'd be pretty clever and a little bit self righteous. So. <laughs> Gosh, let me think. Peacock? Cat. Ah. Cat cat is good. I think cat, cat's good. And he doesn't like cats as well, so it fits with the theme of making Laurie a small dog. <laughs> I did pick you both as a woodpecker and a badger. A badger. <laughs> a badger because, you know, they're cute little things that just get around doing their own thing, but if you pee one off, it'll tear your leg off. Yep, I'll I'll hold my hand up and agree to that That's so true (laughs) And and a woodpecker because it just just can't help but tap, 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 big tap I think, you know, just I just bang on, is that what you're saying? (laughs) No, I think you just get very focused Keith's much more caring than that A woodpecker doesn't strike me as a nice caring kind of creature Oh, surely they raise young (laughs) By pecking them? No. <laughs> no. That was a joke. Um, I don't actually know what creatures. What, what do you see yourself as, Keith? Ooh, I don't know. It's a difficult question, really. It's kind of like I still want to be this ever-changing demon. I don't want to settle on anything in particular. I want to change with my personality and how I'm feeling at each point in time. Mm. So I couldn't pick one for myself. Mm. It needs to almost be revealed to you. You can't choose it yourself. True. So, in this case, I think we're better off selecting for others. So, stay tuned and we'll come up with one. Can't wait. Mm. For some reason, I think Clydesdale, but anyway. For you? Uh, no, for you. Ooh. Yeah. Big, sturdy, dependable, reliable. Oh, I'll, yeah, I'll but like- they don't strike me as clever. Keith's pretty clever. I don't know. I think horses are reasonably intelligent. They're mm. smarter than cows. <laughs> Then they don't strike me as very caring either. Keith's pretty caring. Oh, you've never owned a Clydesdale. <laughs> no. <laughs> They're lovely, Keith, like you are. I'm feeling the love right now, so thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Next episode, Laurie? Well, firstly, thank you all, as always, for listening. Feel free to share your thoughts about what type of animal you are or what animal you think we are uh, on <laughs> Facebook or Twitter at Seeking Tumnus. Next episode, it's back to Brie, and she's chosen The Giver by Lois Lowry. (laughs) Did I? (laughs) (laughs) Why are you laughing? That sounds like a great book. Good choice. Crazy in the coconuts. (laughs) I just read the synopsis, and I'm actually already looking forward to it, with keywords such as dystopia catching my eye. I'm hoping this book is better than the title, which I suspect is the only reason I've never heard of it. 
Until then, remember that there's nothing more fun than a pantalemon in your pantaloons. And keep reading! Did you really forget that you'd chosen that pre? Yes. What happens if I wanted to change it? I've read half of it already, so you're not changing it. I've bought it and read half of it. (laughs) 